the direction of our service, uh, even the worship service. None of that was coordinated with what I was speaking on today. But as the Holy Spirit often does, he coordinates things for us. Our thoughts today are concerning overcoming discouragement. And I think that's incredibly linked to something called hope, right? And when we lose hope, discouragement takes its place. I wanted to read Psalm 42 in its entirety. Don't often read such a lengthy passage of scripture, but Psalm 42 verses 1 through 11, if you are going to follow in your Bible, you can find that there. The writer of the psalm, uh, their, their situation in their soul, you know, where we feel, where we experience emotions, they're longing for God in a place where they, are, they have lost hope and uh, perhaps discouragement has set in. And so Psalm 42 Starting verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been running, have been my food day and night, while they uh, continually say to me, where is your God? You know, those voices that speak to us, you know, where is your God? Sometimes those are external voices. Sometimes those are internal voices. And I think that uh, whether you, no matter what you experience, it still has that, that effect to make us feel and to think that maybe God has abandoned us. Verse 4, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude, I went with them to the house of God, with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I think one of the most felt needs of the day is to overcome discouragement. I think there are just a a number of people that are experiencing discouragement for a a variety of reasons. You know, I think the collective recent history of pandemic and division, inflation, and and all the difficulties our, our nation is going through is, is discouraging to many. Maybe it's on that level. Maybe it's a very personal level. Maybe it's prolonged illness or other kinds of situations that we really don't have any control over. And sometimes that loss of control, man, I tell you what, when, when we lose control, it's really, really discouraging. 
uh, for us. And the, the writer of the psalm, you know, is obviously experiencing something. Why are you disquieted, my soul? What's wrong? What's going on inside? And, of course, points us in, in the direction of hope, hope in God. He is our source of hope. If you are experiencing discouragement at some level, even, even today, maybe you have in the past or whatever, you're never alone. Evidenced by so many who, who may f- came forward in the early, earlier part of our service here, man, we're just going through stuff. It's, it's difficult, you know, to carry that alone. Sometimes we just acknowledge that, we pour that out to the Lord, and He begins to work in unique ways in our lives. Even in, in uh, Scripture, we find that, you know, we're not alone. We're, we're not the only ones that experience discouragement. One of the, the great uh, prophets of the Old Testament, and if you read in the First Kings chapter 19, it would be the prophet Elijah. God used Elijah to do some incredible miracles, miracles of provision, changed the course of Israel's history. Part of what... 1 Kings 19 deals with is the showdown between 400 prophets of Baal and then Elijah who, who uh, stood alone and faced them about who would be God, who would be Israel's God. And the showdown on Mount Carmel was the 400 prophets of Baal, their sacrifice and Elijah and the sacrifice he offered to the Lord God, the the uh, prophets of Baal, sacrificing, of course, to Baal all day long. They got, they got the first shot at uh, calling down fire uh, upon their sacrifice, which was to no avail. And then at the end of the day, it was given to Elijah, and he rebuilt the altar of God that was broken down, restored it, placed the, the, uh, the sacrifice on the altar, prayed a simple prayer that God would show Israel who is God, and fire falls from heaven, it consumes the sacrifice, and there is a great victory over the prophets of Baal and the Baal worship that was, had overtaken Israel at that time. And you would think such an incredible victory would result in elation and, and jubilation, and you know Elijah would have been on top of the world, but you, you read by the very next chapter, Elijah is running for his life. He goes into the wilderness alone, and he cries out, God, just take me now. I am, I am done with living. You just take me home, and, and that's all I want to do right now, just die. And, you know, discouragement comes at the craziest times like that. Just when we think everything should be, we should be on top of everything, and everything should be so, you know, exciting, sometimes discouragement will hit us in the strangest way through circumstances like that. The Apostle Paul also experienced that kind of discouragement as he's writing Timothy, his son of the faith, and saying, you know, winter's coming, Timothy, and he says, I left my coat there in Troas. He says, when you come, when you come to visit me, would you bring my coat? I'm going to need it. It's wintertime. And, and then he goes on to saying that other disciples had abandoned him, and Demas has forsaken me and had loved the things of this world more than the things of God, and he has is, he is run away, and, and here I am alone in prison. You know, just incredible. Even though God used Paul in such powerful ways, miraculous ways, discouragement. You know, so many people in our country right now are experiencing 
uh, discouragement about two weeks ago. I don't know if you saw the Surgeon General of the United States of America uh, had a press conference and he was, he was talking about a new health issue, you know, and I'm watching this and I think, okay, it's another virus, it's another disease, it's another something or other. He came to the podium and he said, you know, this, what's happening in America right now, he says, is affecting so many people, so widespread, he says, is loneliness. And he says, and that is a health issue. He says, we have determined that, that loneliness, long-term loneliness, is, is equivalent to smoking 12 cigarettes a day. It's shortening the lives of our citizens. Loneliness. And was, you know, encouraging people to get off your screens and reconnect with family and friends and, you know, the public, where we have disconnected from all of those things and to our detriment, to our health and loneliness, discouragement, loss of hope, all of those things combine to uh, affect us in that way. Well, Paul, just kind of, we're going to loosely follow uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 if you want to find that in your Bible, if you want to follow along. I think it's important, you know, that we ground all of our words in Scripture. So we want to look at a pattern here Paul has left for us. And Paul certainly is familiar with battling and overcoming discouragement in his own life. And, and certainly we can glean and learn from what he has written for us here. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mer- mercy, we, we don't lose heart. We don't get discouraged. I think one of the things that when we're going through discouragement is, and this is tough to feel, okay? Tough to feel. When we're discouraged, it's tough to feel. But we need to understand that God still loves us, okay? The fact that we're discouraged is not evidence that God has stopped loving us, okay? Now, either through our own actions or the actions of others or situations that overtake us, you know, sometimes when we're discouraged, maybe we've disappointed ourselves. I think, you know, if I'm disappointed in myself, something I said, something I did, or, you know, whatever circumstance I'm in, that God must be feeling that way about me as well. You have a really, really bad day because God is mad at you or that God doesn't love you anymore. I want you to know this. When you are a child of God, that God will never stop loving you, okay? And, and here's, here's one of, a powerful truth. You need to know this. Is that on your very worst day, okay? Maybe that was just this week. I don't know. <laughs> but on your very worst day, God loves you as much as on your very best day. Amen. Okay? I hope that gets down into your spirit. That is for somebody here today, Okay? is that God loves you as much in your worst moment as he does in your best moment, okay? It does not lessen his love. He doesn't, God never steps back and says, ooh, I don't want to be associated with that. No, he, he embraces us, even though at times we may willfully, and I know nobody, nobody in this room would willfully disobey the Lord, right? Even in those moments, His love is unconditional. It's not based on our performance. You know, we talk about unconditional love. What does that mean? It's not based on the condition that you were in. Okay? If you're in a a sad state, you know, or 
discouraged or maybe you're sick or maybe you've done something that, that you shouldn't have done, God's love for you is not lessened by that, okay? That's what unconditional love is all about. He loves you in spite of the fact that you are not perfect. And sometimes you don't feel that. You know, the writer of the psalm questioned, why, why is my soul cast down? Why am I feeling this way? Sometimes we don't understand that. But even in those moments when we're not feeling the love, it does not lessen God's love towards us. And that's just an issue that we have to deal with. So we never forget how much God loves us. It is really hard to be discouraged when you really understand how much God loves you. When you are feeling God's love in your life, it's hard to be discouraged. You kind of have to choose between the two. Am I going to embrace God's love for me in a time like this? Or am I going to sit in, in a pile of self-pity here and, and feel discouraged? A lot of times we don't feel God's love because we think God is angry, God is mad at us. And I've heard people say such a thing. Oh, I know God's really angry at me. God's really mad at me. Is God disappointed? by the things that we don't measure up in or things that we do wrong. God already knew that. You know, when God saved you, when he forgave you of all your sin, this is, this is the thing that blows my mind and to this moment it blows my mind. When we said, Jesus, will you forgive me of all my sin? What does that mean? Does that mean up to this point of repentance? And I can't repent for the sin I haven't done yet, right? So we tend to think of it, all the sins I've ever done up to this point of repentance, you know, and then we'll have to renegotiate for tomorrow, right? For the sin I haven't done yet. But no, when we come to Christ and we ask him to forgive us all our sin, it is all our sin. Past, present, future. It is forgiven. God isn't surprised by the things that we do wrong. He doesn't jump back and say, oh, I didn't know you were going to do that. I, I wouldn't have forgiven you in the first place if I knew you were going to do that. What a, what a mess you've made here. No, when we come to Christ, God has forgiven us all our sin. All our sin. Then we say, well, wow, that kind of opens the door, right? <laughs> we can sin as much as we want, and God's already forgiven it, right? Well, no. <laughs> no. But when we do, we have this relationship with the father. You look at the story of the prodigal son. You should look up the definition of the word prodigal sometime. I know we use it. We're very familiar with it. But I think the word prodigal not only applies to the son, it certainly does apply to the son, but you'll find out that it applies equally to the father. What does prodigal mean? It means wasteful, extravagant. And that is a picture of the son, certainly. He wasted his father's substance and with all kinds of misguided living and, you know, finds himself in a train wreck and feeding pigs, longing for the food that they ate. But who else is the prodigal in the story? Well, that's the father. Who's wasteful and extravagant? The father. He's wasteful and extravagant with his love for his wayward son. Isn't that incredible? is that every day he's looking for the return of his wayward son, his foolish wayward son. 
has wasted his inheritance. All of that work that I have and things that I've saved up to bestow upon them, he has wasted it. You know, there'd be a lot of reason to be angry. But if you read that story, there's never one mention of anger in any of it, until you get to the elder son. But that's another sermon, okay? In fact, when the wayward son finally appears, what is the behavior of the father? Is it to stand there and cross his arms and say, you come crawling on your knees, you grovel before me, and you asked for forgiveness. And I'll decide whether you deserve it or not. That's not the posture of the father. He bolts from his lookout and he runs and he embraces this son who's been living with pigs, no longer has shoes on his feet, filthy, and he weeps on him and he embraces him and he says, take these rags off my son and put the best robe on him and put a ring on his finger. Now, we, we don't really relate to the ring on the finger thing, but what, what did that mean? That was the family checkbook, okay? The signet ring, the crest of the family. When you went into the marketplace and you bought goods, you made the impression of the family signature uh, with the ring in whatever wax or clay or whatever it was, and say, we will pay for this. Can you imagine how extravagant and wasteful that is for the father? Give, the, give the, the wayward son, the prodigal son, the family checkbook and put shoes on his feet because my son was lost and now he's home. All the time that the son was away, he never stopped being the father's son. I don't know if that blows your mind or not. Sometimes we'd like to just write people off. Say, you have disappointed me. You have not met my expectations. You have, you have in some way you know, hurt my feelings. You have offended me. And you are no more. You are dead to me. In very sort of legalistic ways, we can justify that. But that's not the picture of the Father. It's full restoration. The son was ready to take a much lower position. You know, he had a little speech rehearsed. You know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me one of your servants. Just give me a, your room and board, and we'll call it good. But that was not good enough for the father. Full restoration of the rights of a, of a son. Brought into the house with great joy. That's the way God feels about you, okay? That's the way that God feels about you. If sometimes we're wondering, where is God? Why have you forsaken me, Lord? He's right there. Whether you feel it or not, he's right there. Sometimes the challenge is not loving God. We always, you know, we're working on that, our love for God. You know, we want our love for God to increase. We want to be better uh, followers of Christ and all of those things. Sometimes that's not the biggest challenge. Sometimes the biggest challenge is to let God love you the way that he loves you. When you're discouraged, we need to know that. We need to focus on that. In the meantime, you know, when, when we're feeling discouraged, I think it's important that we don't need to fake it. One, one of the little sayings that I hear time to time, different applications, different sort of circles, is fake it till you make it. How many have ever heard fake it till you make it, right? And that applies in a lot of different scenarios that people recommend. Well, just fake it until you make it, and nobody will know the difference. You know what? God never, ever tells us to fake it, ever, right? 
We don't have to put on a pretense about where we're at. I think in our culture, it's not okay, you know, culturally to be transparent. It's, it's a little threatening to us as well. You know, sometimes we want to put on an air of, hey, everything's great, everything's smooth, everything's fine. People ask us, how are you doing? And the correct answer in our culture is, fine, yeah. I suppose that's, that's okay maybe as a cultural sort of exchange. But it's not good in life. When we see each other at church, you know, we haven't seen each other for a week or, or so. And we say, hey, how are you doing? And uh, we start pouring out our oils. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about bankruptcy and lost my job. And, you know, the person we're talking to asks, how are you doing? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we don't want to be that kind of downer, I guess. But I think it's important that, that we don't give in to this sort of false pride that, you know, hey, everything's fine, you know, no troubles and all of that. I think it's important that we don't fake it. God doesn't ask us to fake anything. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul talks about this, this uh, whole idea of covering things up. And he says, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we, we live the truth out. And if we're not doing okay, I think there are good ways to communicate that. You know, and you, we don't have to be a downer. We don't have to be, you know, somebody that frightens everybody and when they see us coming and say, you know, hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, I could really use your prayers. Going through some things, your prayers would be much appreciated. There are positive ways to, to talk about this, but I don't think, you know, we have to just have this sort of outside veneer that uh, hides what's really going on inside our lives. People want to press deeper in that appropriately and share uh, the details of our lives with them, and, and maybe they can pray in a more informed way. Oftentimes, fear keeps us from being that vulnerable, and we're afraid, you know, we'll ruin our reputation or relationships if we're honest about our pain. I found when, when done appropriately, the opposite is really true. People have empathy when we are honest. We don't want to walk around with the rain cloud over our head all of the time. I think in our weakness and our struggles, we can actually help people. So I think it's important that we understand we don't have to fake things. We don't have to come to the house and be fine. Everything's fine. You know, there are no problems, no troubles. And then go home and experience all of our pain and loneliness away from that. I think we can share that. One of the things, even in our suffering, and when we're suffering or when we're discouraged, it, you know, it's all about us. And I think that's important to, to understand that even in our pain or suffering or discouragement is that it's really not about us. John the Baptist, his ministry before Jesus appeared and was revealed and John was the one who revealed Jesus to the crowd. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He announces his arrival. But before that, all the attention was on John. He had a successful ministry, you might say. He was in the wilderness and he was preaching repentance. And the, and the crowds were coming out. And, and he was baptizing many. And even the religious authorities had to come and check him out. And things were, were great. He had the attention of the people and 
that was able to preach the word of God and call people to repentance. And, and then Jesus shows up. Of course, John baptizes Jesus and Jesus sets about the ministry that his father had called him to. And there's a great shift of the crowds. They're no longer coming to John, but they're following Jesus. And especially after Jesus fed them all there on the hillside with the boys' lunch, the loaves and the fishes. And Jesus had the attention. Jesus had the crowds. And John's disciples came to John and said, Hey, uh, have, you, have you noticed? Uh, you know, we, we, aren't, we aren't getting the attention we once were here. You know, the crowds have, have moved on. They've, they're following Jesus now. And it could have been really discouraging. But John had it all in perspective. He says, it's not about me. <laughs> Essentially, that's what he said. He said, Jesus, that one, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about us. It's not about us. Some days, you know, we have to say that to ourselves. We're praised or whether we're criticized, we have to tell ourselves, you know, it's not about me. Even in the pain that I'm suffering, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And when we understand that focus of our trial or you know, pain or discouragement that we're going through, it helps us to remember the why, and that's to live in understanding that Jesus is the focus of everything. And here's one way we can put that to work is if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few pages back from where we were, uh, Paul opens his second letter to the Corinthian church this way. And I think this explains so much for us here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. Now here's the point of this. He comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So that's how we, we recycle this discouragement or pain or whatever that we're going through. And it's not about us, but God is maybe teaching us. We're going to learn something new about a relationship with God. We're going to go through some difficult circumstance only to come out the other side of that situation, understanding more about God. That's not just for our benefit, but it's for the benefit of the next person that we encounter who's going through some situation and we come alongside of that and the comfort that we have received of God and the knowledge that we have received about God and all of those things we can impart and come alongside someone else and encourage them as well. So as we remember, it's not about us. It's about letting the power of God work through us. We can use our pain to help others. I, I think the term for that is redemptive suffering, is when we use the things that we suffer uh, to help someone else who is in that same kind of trouble or difficulty, and, and we can encourage them, we can support them, we can come alongside them. I think it's important as well in our discouragement times where we're struggling, is that it is okay to take time to renew ourselves. As Alaskans, we are just on the cusp right now of the most manic phase of our whole year right now. Isn't that true? As soon as fish are in the river, it's going to be crazy again, like it is every year, right? I think it's important for us to take time to renew. Yeah, I can't, I 
can't take time to renew right now because the fish are in the river. And while I'm renewing, they're going upriver. We miss our opportunity. But it's, it, I think, important for us to manage this. And, and even knowing, you know, there's, there's busy times coming. Just picking up from winter is incredible. And, you know, the work day that we had here at the church, man, I tell you what, we moved so much sand and gravel. It's really hard to watch. You know, we pay for that sand and gravel. And we just want to haul it off, get it out of here. We paid all the money for that, you know. But, uh, man, I tell you, we worked hard and picking up after winter. We're doing that in our own homes. And it's hard to just say, you know what? I need to pace myself. I need to, I know some busy times are coming up. I'm going to renew myself. I'm going to build up my spirit. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord now. You see Jesus doing that. And sometimes right after a, a busy season, in, in fact, you know, when, when Jesus fed the multitude, he was trying to get away, okay? He, was, he went across the lake, not so that he could feed everybody lunch. That wasn't the point. He was getting away because they, they had just told him that uh, John the Baptist had been beheaded. His cousin had been beheaded, imprisoned by Herod. He was trying to get away, but the crowd caught up with him. For three more days, he taught them. And when he finally was able to send the crowds away and for them to go home, he took his rest. Remember, he even set the disciples. He made them get in the boat. He went up on the mountaintop to pray. So we see this pattern with Jesus. Sometimes right after a busy season, sometimes before a busy season, Jesus would take time to renew himself. And I think that's important for us. If we want to overcome discouragement, sometimes we have to stop. Sometimes, you know, we have to allow ourselves to refill. You know, a lot of times, running on empty, I I have this little thing, and many of you have heard this before. And I, Some of you are quite comfortable with that little light on your dash next to your gas gauge. You're comfortable running around with that on. I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. As soon as my needle pulls off a full, I'm looking for another gas station. One time my wife and I were hit in Anchorage. Usually, I mean, I, I, I check the oil and I know where fuel is, how much fuel I have in my tank, but we got away, and we got clear past sunrise, you know, on Keen Lake there, and we're about two or three miles past sunrise, and that little light came on my dash, and my wife said, you better not run out of gas here, you'll never hear the end of it, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> we turned around, made it back, didn't run out of gas, but, you know, some of us Live, want, want to drive with a full tank. Others are very comfortable on the ragged edge of disaster. <laughs> I don't get that. I don't understand that at all. And, and you know, it's kind of the way we, we uh, you know, live our lives. We're running on the ragged edge of disaster all the time, either financially or with our time or energies or whatever. We just live on this ragged edge of disaster. We think, oh, the light goes on. You know, that means I, I've got uh, 25 more miles I can drive. What was that? Are we at 24 and a half? Yeah. <laughs> comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with that. We can get ourselves in difficulty that way. I'm told, you know, one of the things that they do when you go in the emergency room is they check you for hydration. Why? Because we don't drink enough water. We're very comfortable with not drinking enough. We're very comfortable with walking around dehydrated, right? You get into the ER and they find out you're dehydrated. Well, no wonder you're in the ER. You're dehydrated. We're just okay with that. You know, it's like, I'm too busy to drink water or whatever. If we just live hydrated, full, 
we would just experience so much better health in general. But we're okay with, you know, living on the ragged edge. Sometimes that's the way we live our lives. We don't take time for ourselves, we, for the important things. And, and you know what? Sooner or later, those things will catch us. If we don't be proactive, take time to refill our tanks, refill our emotions and all of those things, we are going to get caught. And so we just need to take the time. It will help us overcome discouragement. My last thought here, and the worship team can come and be ready to close our service with a final song, is stay focused on eternity. I was just having a conversation in, uh, in back-to-back weekends. We've had uh, memorial services for people who passed and remembering those things. And when you have a couple of those close together, you know, you get to thinking about that. And one was, you know, not a surprise, and the other one was much a surprise. You get to thinking a lot about eternity. So there's some sort of switch, I think, and I, I'm thinking of a message on this, so I'm not going to go real far on it. You know, do you remember when, when you're young, there's this impatient to get older? I want to get older. You know, I want to, if you're five years old, you want to be 10 years old. You know, you're 10 years old. You, and that's kind of the way we all get up, grow up. And, and there's always more privilege. There's always more things we can do. There's more ability. And, and uh, we can't wait, you know, for another year. You're 15 and you want to start driving. You know, you got another year to wait. Seems like a year takes forever. How many know at this stage of our lives, providing you're somewhere in the vicinity of my age, that a year is but a moment. You know what I'm talking about? Where does that switch? Where does that switch? We're just looking to time just go by, just go by, just go by. And we get to whatever age it is and our tension kind of changes. Time goes by too fast. All of a sudden, we don't have enough time. I remember a trip to town I took with one of my sons and I just making conversation with him in the car and I turned and said, hey, how old are you? I knew. But he said, I'm nine years old. And it hit me for the first time. Nine years old. Nine is half of 18. Wait a minute. That went way too fast. There's so many more things I wanted to do. There's so many places I wanted to go. There's so many things I wanted to experience. And we're at nine already? How did that happen? Eternity is coming. We stay focused on eternity. Somewhere in that span of our life, I think that's a natural thing that happens. Jesus is coming for us. We take hope in that. In fact, most days, I just soon to be right now. Early on, I, I remember talking to kids when I was a youth pastor, and they say, you know, I hope Jesus doesn't come right away. Why? Well, you know, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to have a house and a pick a fence. Yeah, we understand that. It's like, heaven couldn't be any better than that, I know. You don't want to go to heaven and live in regret for eternity that you didn't get to do all that. But sometimes, you know, we, most of us, you know, we do grow up, we do fall in love, we do marry, we do have a family, do have a home. And you find out that that's wonderful, that's great. But Lord, I'm ready to see what's next. I'm ready for you to call us home. Nothing we compare here on earth, even the most wonderful things, to what God has in store for us. And when we are feeling down, when we're feeling discouraged, when we have a lack of hope, I think that is 
part of the design of that is to draw our attention to eternity. The next step. What God has in store for us. Where there will be no more crying and no more pain. No more parting ways. We've, we've never lived in a world like that. How would you like to live in a world where there just wasn't any offense? Weird. <laughs> How'd you like to live in a world where nobody got sick and died? That's what's coming. We never lived in a world like that. We don't understand it. But I think part of our discouragement, our pain, our suffering, and all that is to draw our attention heavenward. And pretty soon, all of these wonderful things that we know and experience here on earth will say, you know what, there's more. There's more. And God has that for you. He loves you. He wants you to be with Him in a place that defies our descriptions and our thoughts and our imagination. Would you stand with me? If you are just, you know, at some point of discouragement and maybe you feel like you shouldn't be, you know, things are going relatively well and all of that, but somehow you just feel a little discouraged, uh, I, I want to encourage you today. Use that not just on yourself, but to come along somebody by somebody else and encourage them. You know, if you are in the midst of discouragement and you don't know what to do, yeah, don't, don't be reluctant to be transparent. Just say, you know what, I could use your prayers. I'm in a tough place right now. And if you just pray for me, I'd really appreciate it. And to be authentic, of course, always, you know, be appropriate with what we reveal. Allow others to share and come alongside you. Maybe they can, maybe they have experienced what you're experiencing and they can comfort you with the comfort that they themselves have received. So there's lots of opportunity for us today, but would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to the close of this time today, Lord, we just want to thank you. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord. Hope, Lord, pray for hope for those, Lord, who need hope. For those who are discouraged, Father, that they would look outside of their discouragement and onto you. And Lord, the hope of eternal life, the hope of heaven, the hope, Lord, that really keeps us alive. We pray today, Lord, for anyone here who's experiencing any measure of disappointment, that you'd speak to them. Say, you know what? You're going to be okay. You're going to come through this. And it's going to be a shared adventure, you and God, with which you can use to comfort someone else. So, Father, I pray today, Lord, that we'd look for the things that you're teaching us in hard times. Lord, we'd learn those lessons, and then we'd encourage ourselves in the Lord. And, Lord, look for ways to be redemptive with our pain. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.